This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Coming to you from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. Looking out on Locust Walk on a beautiful January morning. Got the whole crew in here. The whole crew. Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. Dion Simpkins on the board. Matty Datz running the show. And Zap Drapkin keeping us informed and entertained. Glad you guys are here. You can join us. Jump in here and give us a shout. Phone number to do that, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or email us, businessradio at com. Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle. Of course, at WMoneyBall. Great way to be in touch with us. Follow the world of sports analytics. Ask us questions. Make comments. Whatever you got, you can do it at, at WMoneyBall. We're going to be here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning for two hours. We have our regular show today in that we have guests. Guests at the bottom of this half hour. Bottom of this hour. And the top of the next, talking a little football with Seth Walder, ESPN Seth Walder, runs the analytics group up there. Looking forward to that. And then top of the next hour, Alexandra Mandricki helping run the new ice hockey team in Seattle. You guys may not know that's happening. It's happening. Not this season, but next. And they're building it out. One of the first pieces they got was a statistics person. Alex is going to talk to us about what's going on in Seattle at the top of the next hour. All right, fellas, between now and then we have open lines, lots of things going on. My goodness gracious, lots of things going on. I'm curious what in particular, and one man's waving his hand, Adi Weiner, what do you yeah, got? Well, for me, it was remarkable. I watched more college football than I, you know, I watched almost an entire so college exciting. football game, which I'm, is a remarkable thing for me. I thought Incredible. about that, Adi. I noticed that and I thought about that. And uh, actually it was, and so I, just, these are newbie comments, if you will. Um, it was great fun in the beginning. Of course, I was rooting for Clemson, actually, bet on Clemson lost. But one thing I recognized was it's a very different game than uh, the NFL, although it seemed to converge a little bit towards the end of the game. In the beginning, it just seemed so wide open. There's just, you know, there's a pass, there's lots of room to, f- it's just not, it's not as tight, I mean, a, a game. If you look at, I, I 100% agree, I, I think it's valuable, these outside perspectives. Like, yeah. I sit down and watch baseball a couple times a year, right? and <laughs> the things that strike me are different from the things that strike you guys, yeah. but they're not uninformed. So you're saying you're observing one of the most fundamental differences between the sports. We should know this. It's an empirically observable number. The difference in the in the yards, the variance in yards gained per play. That's right. Yeah. NFL versus NCAA. And it's it's much greater in NCAA. So there's an, there's a raggedness, but mm-hmm. there's an exciting uh, aspect. Very exciting. Yeah. Things just seem extremely explosive, um, which was remarkable. The two quarterbacks are incredible. I mean, the way they throw these super tight spirals. I know I'm going to – it sounds like I'm transitioning to another game, but uh, this was they, – they just are extremely accurate with – their arms are strong. I mean, this was – I'm talking about Lamar Jackson. He seemed to be wobbly with his uh, with his passing. We're, we're, we'll, have we'll have time to talk to get, about oh, that. Yeah. But, but, but Eric's taking some issue with how impressed you are by the quarterbacks. Well, I mean, Trevor Lawrence 
frankly, towards the end of the game, was hugely inaccurate. I mean, his 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 he was not the entirely accurate the yeah. entire game. Um, but well, actually, there was a few. I mean, he he had his, towards the end, he had an incredible like fifty yard bomb that was pass interference, but it was perfectly thrown um, and right on target and and strongly distanced. Um, I, I mean, I don't have the the data on that, but yeah, he probably wasn't that accurate the entire game. But these were these are both impressive quarterbacks. Yeah. So I watched that game. Obviously, same bet that you had, but I watched a little bit differently. I was trying to think about which of those players, I'm not saying which one will be drafted higher. I'm saying at their respective positions that I think was most of an outlier and was most kind of ready for the NFL. Mm -hmm. So when I watched that game, to me it wasn't even close, and it's not Joe Burrow. The wide receiver... On LSU, Chase, I think was his last name. Well, they got they got more than one. The Chases. No, no, the, no. no. Yeah. He's the one player that I thought was a you know if they're all ready in, to go in the NFL. He's ready to go in the NFL. I thought his talent level because he was playing against, by the way, I think an All American cornerback, and so Stingley. He, yeah, he was being covered. He was being covered by someone that's an All American cornerback, and I just thought his skill level was much greater. Now let me say for me. Joe Burrow wasn't even the second best player on the field at their position. I thought the running back for Clemson is it Etienne? Yeah, yeah. I he thought was he was the role. second neck, second best player at his position. The thing that Joe Burrow, thing that I have not seen yet, an ans- an advanced analytic dump, if you'd like, about his game. L- how much time does he take to release the ball? People have said he doesn't have great arm strength. So what? What's the velocity of the ball? We have advanced analytics now. How tight a window does he throw the ball into? We've actually had people that talked about short, medium, and deep depth. How is his skill game at each one of those depths? So I watch Joe Burrow, and I completely understand that he's going to be the number one pick in the draft and deserves to be. But I didn't leave that game saying, wow, this player is the at their given position was the best player and, I saw and, and on the I mean, field. And it's an intriguing question because, I mean, Retrospect, you man. I mean, we look now. We're like, oh my goodness, this Patrick Mahomes. I mean, obviously, he looks like he is going to dominate the NFL for the next decade. But two, three years ago, did any of us say that coming out of college? There like, were, what did we? There were see? people who didn't think he was going to be an NFL quarterback at all, right? And so I mean, I, like scouts. And you remember so Kansas how, City? How, I think traded up to get him, and people were incredulous. I, like, lo- I look at his talent now, and I'm like, well, how how did not everybody see the seeds of this or whatever? And like, you know, so I, I don't know how much that transition, that first year of playing or training, like under Alex Smith, how much that was formative. How how much can you predict this kind of long term sustained suspect out of like kind of college highlights? Basically, Listen, I've been watching this for five years since we've been doing Moneyball, and the quarterback college, the college quarterback, the professional quarterback transition is the most uncertain of yeah. anything in all of sports. That's right. Considering how leveraged, considering how valuable it is, and we just it's so hard to predict. And I keep wondering, and you mentioned this with: Are there any advanced analytics that can actually yes. give you these kind of peripheral information, like how oh, hard yeah. you throw? Well, no one ever talks about it. I watched Joe Burrow. And I thought he was damn accurate. I mean, you talk about his. I mean, he was threading the needle on some of those on some of those. And, long and some catches. of the advanced analytics you talk about, we've talked about, like we talked about, you know, with Baker Mayfield. I mean, these these sort well, of like is, accuracy for like as a function, function of distance. Just, yeah, They're that, doing that, that. That beautiful curve that Hermsmeyer yeah, draws. Right. I, I'm already looking. Your Eric's question made me look. It's, well, it's, those depend on the receiver and your line and the time. And no, all these things no, I disagree. Oh, what I'm talking about do. is wait, wait. 
conditional on a given situation. That's what I said. That's just, no, but that's just no, the, those, no, no. those lines that we're talking about, the air yards and Hermesmeyer, those are just on how, how far you're throwing it. No, that, no, no, that no but I'm not talking out. about just that. I'm, let's imagine we took every throw that Joe Burrow made in the game, okay? We have the location of all the receivers in the game. We have the location of the defensive backs, right? So we know how much of a window he had. You could measure how long it took him to release the ball. You could look. You could measure exactly where yeah, the ball landed. No, so I'm conditioning can, on all of those things. You can, but no things. one has. I'm, no, 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 I just f- said I didn't see that analysis yet, but I'm saying you can do that analysis. I've never but, seen it done, so I, I think, wonder whether or not this is and, so and, easy. And, 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 and the, one, the Hermsmeyer is, one is averages over a lot yeah. of those contexts. But I, I mean, but I think Shane's question is the more important one, which is there's the intercept, which is here's where Joe Burrow is now. Now, to me, the uncertainty becomes yeah. what do we know about... Let's imagine his arm strength is 80... However you want to measure it, is 80th percentile of college quarterbacks. Okay, let's imagine his speed is 70th percentile. Let's imagine his accuracy is 98th percentile. Great, but he's not playing in the pros now. What is he a year from now, two years from now? That's the part, I think, that's the massive uncertainty. Right. I think of, we can measure him today. And, and, and part of what I think increases the uncertainty in these NFL like in this transition from college to NFL, is we're dropping all these high draft pick quarterbacks into not usually crappy teams or, or, or dysfunctional organizations. <laughs> right? I mean, you don't expect right? the Cincinnati Bengals to win next year. Well, Bur- I mean, actually, Joe Burrow, <laughs> if he gets drafted by Cincinnati, is probably walking into about as good a situation as a number one draft yeah, look at, could look walk at Josh, into because they at, still have talent around them. Look at what Josh Rosen walked into yes, at, in awful. Arizona, yes. and then he got bumped over to Miami. I mean, the guy... The guy might not have made it as an info quarterback, but yeah. look at the circumstances. We're, we're increasing the variance in these like high-level draft picks by construction, dropping them into teams where they are kind of, I guess, overall teams the least likely to succeed. So why do you agree with me then? Given your statement about uncertainty of quarterbacks, you don't necessarily disagree with me that the wide receiver for LSU and the running back for Clemson, at they're if ready. You had to, they're yes. ready. That was my yeah, statement. Yeah, but the leverage is, is on the quarterback is much higher. So I'm going to go back to Joe Burrow because the question that – statistical question that very much intrigues me, particularly with comparison to Trevor Lawrence. Lawrence is, what, barely 20? He's a sophomore. He's Correct. True, he's true didn't redshirt, went yeah. right out of – the guy's a, a child. He's 6'6", and he's – you know, in, but he still has that very thin, uh, you know, teenage-like appearance. Joe Burrow is – Real quickly on that, that guy can take a lick in. I mean, he's, he's a yeah, big he boy, 6'5", 6'6". He gets pounded. He runs. He runs. He's he pounded people. by linebackers and he just takes it he's just a, he might he's a little slender but he's he's substantial he's substantial yeah. and he's and he's a child by by comparison's sake he can't oh, yeah, enter no, the draft no, kid, no question so burrow on the other hand has been, he's 23 turned 23 in december he's in his sixth year of college, you know, two years of red shirt. This is four great. Year. And what great does that point. mean? And I'm not the only one. I mean, Mike Salfino, no, Salfino I, he's was going on. to town on this particular point. He just point. liked to be a contrarian. So uh, which, found of a course, good, I He found love. a good position to take. <laughs> which, and, but the thing is, is what does that mean? And none of, none of us really know how to answer that. Mahomes, you bring up before. No, let's just underscore it a little bit more because 12 months ago, no one thought twice about Joe Burrow. Mm-hmm. Right, 12, that's right. 12 months ago. And now he's unanimous top quarterback this year, consensus, successful NFL. Really? I mean, we didn't know it 12 months ago. Now, the lesson should be we know less than we think we know. That should be the lesson. Well, actually, but if you're going to apply the lesson to this moment, well, this well, is, so then I you're going to be we, more sober. I and I got an email from a listener who asked us especially about that question. It's in the rundown that Matt put together, which was, given Joe Burrow essentially didn't even make the Ohio State team, 
We have one year of fairly average, above average play last year, and now we have one good year. Basically, good year, the list- one of the greatest no, 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 years great in college football yeah. ever. Year, thank you. But the listener was saying, <laughs> isn't there some, un- this is back to Kate's point, yeah. isn't there still some uncertainty about Joe Burrow and oh, yeah. how it translates to the pro level? Well, and then, the then add yes. on top of it, the uncertainty of what, what, what he's walking into at Cincinnati. You know, I mean, right, they, right. they haven't really established can what I, they're... Can, I, can well, I throw something out? Maybe if he one... weren't 37 years old, I'd, I'd want him to hold out for a year. <laughs> <laughs> He's 37. Right, so, so here's go my up question. against Lawrence coming through the next time <laughs> No, or, no uh, just go on free agent yeah. and pick his team yeah. next year. Let me ask, uh, I mean, this is something for, for maybe a student to, to investigate, but you asked this question about Joe Burrow and he, his previous year, his junior, his junior year, his redshirt junior year. He wasn't good, and now he's extraordinary. I mean, top of the heap. Is there any data? Do we have information on quarterbacks who have their final year extraordinary and the previous year mediocre? Does that predict or say anything? Do we actually have information? So any data we have is so imperfect. Um, so the the answer is historic, historically, more college starts is better. Yeah. So and and that's you know I don't know that's probably just reflecting that you you know you're you're better than the competition in college earlier. You know if you can start as a freshman on average. You're more talented, but that's just one little stat among many. You know, so there's a little signal there, but I don't. Yeah, and I, I think this is one where the context is so important that yeah. uh, the base rate. I'm not even sure a base. I mean, I'm usually All with right, you well, when you yell at base rate, yeah. but I think in this one, I don't think the base rate's informative. informative. All right, so here's my question: What do you do with it? So now we have this six year. I mean, let's let's put our put the you know let's with the rubber to the road. Let's make us. What do we say? Do we knock it down? Do we ignore it? I mean, what is your gut? I mean, you draft a number. Let me go to Shane's yeah. point here, which is the important one. Is there a wide so receiver? We claim, no, we claim. <laughs> oh, let me just, like, <laughs> so not the analytics take away. All kind of <laughs> Shane. Shane's answer was, you draft your number one and hope. There's the Wharton money about <laughs> analytics well, answer. But actually, I think Shane's answer is very analytical in the following sense. I like the end <laughs> Thank you, part, I appreciate but that. But I'm saying it in the following he sense. didn't say it, pray. No, no. <laughs> but Cincinnati, think about Cincinnati. Cincinnati's sitting there. In a decision theoretic context, they, the weather of all teams that are sitting there, Cincinnati's not yeah, making no, decision no, no, theoretically. No, but I'm thinking of it differently, which is they could trade it. They could trade it. Yeah. That's one possibility. Is but how good? It's not about. It is about how good Joe Burrow is, but it's also about. So, what are your other alternatives? If you compare his number oneness to other number one quarterbacks have been out, like, how, are you as convinced he's going to be as good as when Andrew Luck came out? That's no. the standard I no. like to use. Well, that's uh, no, quite no. the standard. He well, was, no, well, no, no, but Joe Burrow, we all agree, or Peyton Manning, Joe Burrow had the greatest season of any quarterback probably in college football history. Certainly one of most the greatest yeah. Most touchdowns, most right. yards, right. Accuracy. Right. Are you as convinced? No. All right. Well, so then, if someone were but, to give you Herschel really- Walker like pay for his pick and your Cincinnati, if you thought he was Andrew Luck, you wouldn't take it. If you weren't sure he was Andrew Luck and someone offered you three ones, a couple of twos, whatever, to move up to number one, you'd consider oh, that. So if, yeah, if, I mean, if you give me that kind of package, I definitely take right, that. So that's over much more interesting. So let's say you him. get you get Tua. He's also going to be in the draft. Mm-hmm. I don't know where he'll go, and you get that wide receiver. Um, this is the point because you're not saying if quarterbacks are so valuable, they're so important. You got to find your franchise quarterback. We we all get that, but it doesn't mean that it has to come from the number one pick. I right. Mean, there, yeah. there will be other quarterbacks in the draft, so that really is the question. Do you want Burrow at one, or do you want Tua, and Tua Chase. plus something else, or do you want Herbert and something and a couple of something else's? That is the question. It's a really hard question. No, yeah, advise. I, Come on. What do we think? Because I my gut is I will take Tua and. 
whatever is number one. Certainly, I mean, that's you know that's that's the that's the field. You know, you and I are field people. Give yep. us a, we're always going to bet field versus the, the the favorite, and that's that's the wise, empirically base rate informed choice. And it eats but, at you, but, doesn't but it? But look, no, it... <laughs> well, look, it's, you've always got to set the base rate against the diagnostic diagnosticity of the individual case. And the, so the whole question is, how confident are you about Burrow? But I think this is an opportunity because the lack of com- the slight lack you, of confidence ought, is about Burrow. What what we what I agree with you 100 percent on is that we should be less confident than it feels about mm-hmm. Burrow. We That's should. Right. All of history suggests it doesn't matter how we feel. He may be good. He may be great. But he, we can't be as certain of that as it feels like we should be sitting here. And my opening comment was just, I think we're getting to a stage where advanced analytics can help us a little bit reduce some of that uncertainty. I've not yet seen, Adi, and I agree with you, I've not yet seen kind of like, what's the advanced analytics scouting report on Joe Burrow? I'd love to see it, and that would help me reduce some of my uncertainty. Well, we're going to get that over the next few months as we transition. Great. We, as we'll, take a, we'll take a 15-second pause as we move from actual college football to... The NFL draft. Oh, NFL draft, right. <laughs> this is Wharton Moneyball. Of course, you guys can jump in here and join us. 1 844 Wharton, 1 844 or hit us up on Twitter at W Moneyball. We also played some uh, professional football yeah. over, the, over the weekend. Some exciting we, professional I football. I love it. <laughs> hey, I went, I went. Sadly, I went yeah. to the Ravens. Hey, quick, before we dive into that, someone needs to run the numbers on the the the, the advantage that you, that you get living in Philadelphia to attend professional sports. Is there any city in the country oh, where you have more question. like drivable venues, professional sports venues than Philadelphia? Well, you are sacrificing college venues for being in Philadelphia. Well, yeah, you have well there's there's no college football up here at all, but but that's not Rutgers. that's not unique to Philadelphia. <laughs> that's New York, that's Boston, that's everything. But but you guys are going to Yankees games all the time. Yeah. Audi, no, you drop down and you Baltimore go, is just as far as you great. Go, you go I down mean, to in terms of like walking into professional football games like at for fifteen dollars, I think you have to take LA, right? I mean <laughs> <laughs> but but yes, in terms of watching, walking into the compelling sports yeah, situation, we have a lot of well, we, I, we can get to Baltimore faster than people can get from Pasadena no, to no, see them. You know, yeah. I can just say for myself, I haven't driven. I've been to Yankees, Mets, Rangers, Knicks. I've gone up in New York, and I took the subway. The beauty of New York is you take the subway. You can do it here in Philly too. But again, we're with... not a great driving city in New York to go to those games. But it's really easy through public transportation yeah. Yeah. to get to know, them. From Philadelphia, you get all of those things. Y'all do within two hours. You can get. With a, a fast car, it gets to the Nationals in two hours. Yeah, the Nationals. The, the, the Orioles are an hour and a half. The Yankees are about two hours. The Mets, two hours. Okay, so that's just a, a, little, lot of a, little, a little plug for Philadelphia. But we had a painful evening down there in Baltimore Saturday night, obviously. What else stood out to you guys about this last weekend of football? Well, I mean, everyone's, I'm sure, asking themselves the question, can Derrick Henry do it again? Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. Kansas City is not a good run defensive team. What's interesting is... This I, this is the first time in my memory that this has happened. Maybe it's happened all the time. These two teams, four teams, they've played each other. Yeah. San Francisco destroyed Green Bay this season. Tennessee beat the Chiefs this season. So like both of the- those ge- these are repeats of both of those games. Now I understand. I look. I understand that Tennessee-Kansas City game was a very strange game with a lot of things that happened to break Tennessee's way and all of that. But those two teams, that they've played each other already this season. I think that's a huge advantage. Well, yeah, and... and the main thing that broke Tennessee's way in that earlier matchup is that Patrick Mahomes, he was like a, it was like his first game back, I That's think, correct. from injury or something like that. I think, and he's definitely looking much, better, a, isn't he? looking much better than he was back then. And I think that's 
That's the thing where, you know, as, as, as scary as Derrick Henry is, I mean, he's plowed through, like, a couple amazing teams already, um, or at least one amazing team and one good team. Uh, he... Kansas City actually is hooked up to come back from behind. So I, that's the that was bold. Yeah, so it I, turns I, I, out no, Baltimore's is this, is key weakness be, is, this be is a re- their entire team or their entire offensive strategy was not designed to come. I think they, back. Gave, they gave up on that so so quickly. I don't know why they they're the best offensive team in the league. They're the best team in the league. They're one of the best teams we've seen You're in fifteen years. Why yeah. they abandoned the run down two touchdowns with the entire game ahead of them? Is beyond me. I, I really think they gave it away by shifting away too quickly. Probably that's true, but I mean, you know, te- they both Tennessee and Baltimore's offenses are basically a run run offenses, and that just made the game a lot shorter for them. I mean, it's, it, you can argue it wasn't that they so abandoned short that they had. To, to, I mean, they were down fourteen zero before the end of the first quarter, and it was two possessions. They're down fourteen, two and a half possessions. Yeah. They're down fourteen zero. You still got three quarters ahead of you. Mm-hmm. If you're truly ten points better than Tennessee. Then just play the normal game and you're yeah. going to catch them up. Yeah, this, yeah. they did not. I mean, that was the they did no, not. No, 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 no. Lamar might have thrown like sixty times in the game. Yeah, he threw fifty nine times. Fifty. All right, there was 59. a bunch of op- open sets, no backs. Yeah, the the thing that I'm thinking about with that Tennessee game, the upcoming game is, is this going to be in some sense? I keep thinking back to when the Giants played the Bills in the Super Bowl, and the Giants never stopped the Bills. The Bills, I don't think, punted in that game. Oh, no, this is punted. the first one. This, this was is the, the wide first, right. The wide yeah. right, but the Giants went, I'll say, at 20-19. to 19. They knew every possession they gave to Jim Kelly and the Bills, they were going to score. So if you're Tennessee, you run the ball, you run it again, you run it some more, you keep running the ball until they prove they can stop you, you shorten the number of possessions, and maybe Tennessee gets one break in the game, which gives them an opportunity to win the mm-hmm. game. Because they know if they have, I'll make it up, if it's 15 possessions for them, 15 for Kansas City, they're losing that yeah. game. That's not yeah. the game they're going to win. You agree. You saw Tennessee. They can win this game. Oh, yeah, they can win this game. I, no, I mean, they. I, I do not think KC is at all a lock for the Super Bowl. I, I mean, I... Uh, but I, I would still favor KC in this matchup just because of Patrick Mahomes. I agree. I mean, can, can I can I ask you, you to respond to a, a graph that was provided to us by Matt from uh, from Fantasy Pros, David Zach? He has this incredible picture which describes the the runs running back yards created above what's expected. So it's tries to adjust for a lot of the basic things that can affect the outcome of a run. And he has Henry so far ahead of number two that it's remarkable from a statistical perspective. Is this something that I should be believing? I mean, what is the what is your take as believing a more, in terms of it being is sustainable into I mean, the future? Uh, no, yes, probably this forecast? not. Is this, I, is this something you can believe I regress in that a little bit? Well, what's what's now? nice? What's nice is th- so again, this is from Fantasy Pros, David Zach at Fantasy Pros, and he tr- he tries to control for these things. It's tough to control for things, but this is you know it's a nice effort. It's a great effort actually. And what you'd expect is you would expect once he's done this, you get this kind of normal distribution. And of course, you get normal but then you get these exceptions one exception in particular way out on the right hand side and so when you see something so far it's deviating seems to deviate from the normal distribution it starts feeling like true individual difference and this is something that that we have been taught to believe by our by the analytics community we should be suspicious of particularly at the running back position well i mean i'm suspicious of it for the same reason we should always be suspicious of these random facts that come across our plate is that they don't come across to him randomly this graph was made after, after derrick henry ran like over 180 <laughs> yards in three straight games but i think what so you're no, asking I don't think that Adi kind is of also this is sustainable what i think you're also asking is what i would call an effect size question in the following sense that's right if this graph is true let's imagine the graph is true it's done and by the way i agree with <coughs> kate it's been done very thoughtfully let's imagine the graph is true 
this would almost make you start to think, hmm, maybe, you know, the <laughs> analytics that says don't run on first and second down, if you don't have Derrick Henry. But if you do have <laughs> Derrick Henry, like this, right. if this is true, there's an effect size here that's significant enough that you should run, run again, run again. You know, well, it, so this, but that's a good general point that we come up with these right. these like heuristics that are just they're more, oh, just base rates essentially. So it always needs to be contextualized. It always can be turned over if there are enough other factors. The trouble is there typically aren't enough other factors. The bigger problem is people are too sure they know what the other factors are. So you have to be sober about what these other factors are. Well, we're getting more and more informed about what the Derrick Henry factor is. By the way, he averages four point one yards after contact. 4.1 after contact. 4.1 would be a fine rushing per attempt yeah. average. Much so less. if they hit him in the backfield, like, you know, if they managed to get him to in the backfield uh, every play, he'd be like he'd a regular be fine. running back. He'd still be fine. The, uh, <laughs> Where'd he come from? Uh, Alabama. He won, the, he won the Heisman Trophy. One of the interesting things about him <laughs> is that people thought when he won the Heisman yeah. Trophy, by the way, he beat Christian McCaffrey. Yeah, uh-huh. for the Heisman Trophy and, and what a lot of people thought was unjust. But people were like, ah, just another unexciting Alabama running back wins this thing. It was more a team award. This was the knock at the time. And so in some sense, this is redemption for him. He's he's more impressive this year, at least the second half of this year, than he was as an Alabama. He was fine as an yeah, Alabama running back. I don't remember him being – I mean, I remember him at Alabama well. But I don't remember – like, if you had asked me yeah, was, which guy like, – just like I said, Chase yeah. and Etienne, at, if – when I compare Etienne in this national championship game to Derrick Henry at Alabama, I would have said Etienne is yeah. definitely going to be the better player. Agreed, especially given the team he was surrounded by, and that was the knock at the time. Just by the way, to continue Zach's analysis, just to give you a little bit more. So Henry's out there almost twice the yards above or below expected per attempt. Behind him, numbers two, three, and four, Raheem Mostert, Nick Chubb, and Christian McCaffrey. So if you're watching closely, you can decide for yourself how validating it is to see those next three guys. But look who's at the very bottom. Well, it isn't. Le'Veon Bell is the number one, is the last guy. He's the nth running back, and not by a little bit. That's by about, a lot. That's and look at Todd Gurley. He's also close to yeah, being. Gurley's so what does this there. mean? They had really bad seasons, by the way. There are mm-hmm. lots of people have done yeah. analyses of Le'Veon Bell's season ad nauseum. I've read tons of articles. He's had a, He had an absolutely horrible. This is just confirming what everybody yeah. knew, that he had a bad season, as well as Todd Gurley. Neither one of them had good seasons. So, yeah. guys, as long as we're looking at, at player evaluation, did any of you look at Kevin Cole's piece on wide receivers? So, Pro, P, Pro Football Focus, um, their latest analyst, their newest analyst, Kevin Cole, put out a really interesting piece on analyzing wide receivers, and he did it using plus minus, kind of an advanced version of plus minus, a much a much advanced version of plus minus. And there's more details than we can get into right now, but it's a great article to go dig into, and um, he ends up. I mean, I'm mostly interested from a methodological perspective because plus minus is something that comes out of hockey. Well, and plus it's, minus it's really tough to make it work let in me football. Just, for, yeah. our, for our listeners, plus minus is essentially the idea that you look with you and without you. So with you is the plus, without you is the minus, and you just compare how your team does well, with you or without of metric, you. Lots of metrics, and it's yeah. it's and lots of it's just a standard, very old and and useful way. It's of, particularly of, of difficult getting in football because there's hard. It's hard yes. if, if you're a really good player. It's hard to get that minus part because right. you play essentially you play all the time. every so, down. So, Offensive linemen, for example, yeah. are probably going to play every every right. every snap. So it, there's it, no it, without you. It came <laughs> from hockey, which is ideal for it because those guys are doing shifts. They're doing one minute, one and, and a half. And basketball does plus minus as well. They do, but it's really kind of highly perfect confounded, for right? But the trouble with hockey is this is another confound is you usually play with the same line mates. So you, you might yeah. the front and the back might be different, but you're usually going on with the same three guys if you're an offensive guy. Um, 
So but, this was so a technique is, to sort of augment that, those yeah, problems to, with, with small I'll, sample size. He, he, he comes up with a way to do, he uses cluster analysis, and then he, he repeats that in kind of a sophisticated way. And he ends up pulling out some numbers and um, suggests that I think maybe the best season. The best season well, I was it Andre Johnson 2007, Andre Johnson, but he's a smaller sample. And so he yeah. said if you regress for sample size, you probably give it to Randy Moss, like 07 mm-hmm. Randy Moss or something like that. Throw in but, an empirical Bayes shrinkage at the very end. That's a good well, technique, they, people. They, I know it's a great technique, <laughs> but they're not using it. They, it's, no you, one does. You could just, it would be an easy thing because they want to, they, they use text. They do all this fancy stuff, and then they use text to say, ah, it's kind of a small sample, so maybe we give Moss. Just shrink it. Yeah. Samples base, sample size Bayes shrinkage using Bayesian stuff. But the, the general point here is, we're, empirical we're, base, by the way, empirical base. Empirical base. You know, no subjective priors. We estimate them from the data. Okay. <laughs> if you need more consultation, Audi Weiner's available. Well, you got Shane so, Jensen even here. He's a professional. <laughs> what, what, I, what, I, what I admire about this is that it's pushing this frontier, which is, 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 I think, one of the most interesting frontiers in sports analytics, and that is, can we get better individual evaluation in football? Where it's so hard because there are 22 guys on the field at any given moment. It's so hard to do this well, and we're and and it's going to be a while before we do it well. But these little advances, like Kevin's advance here, these little advances are helpful and fun. Again, I go back to my opening statement, which is I there's got to be a set of advanced metrics that we can compute. Whether for a wide receiver, I mean, obviously you can measure speed, you can measure degree of separation, you could measure, you know, given a ball is put in a particular location, what's the probability he catches the ball? That's being done, by the way. No, 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 I'm just saying, I'm not saying this answers the question, but there has to be, we have to be able to close the gap as opposed to what I'll call the brute force older metrics, which were number of catches, yards per catch, run after the catch. Those are good metrics. But we have better right now. We do have better metrics than those. So I I think the answer inevitably is going to be we have to use all these techniques. This is one of the reasons I think PFF, you know, people have knocked, especially guys in industry early on, knocked PFF and their scouting grades. But, man, those guys built this infrastructure for scouting grades. And they're actually better than a lot of the professionals would, would have you believe. But now they're augmenting that those, these subjective evaluations with really good data science. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have that for, for a while. It was like, come on, guys, you got to do better with your numbers. And now they've got really sophisticated guys in there. And you're talking about, Eric, you're talking about the advanced um, analytics, the motion tracking kind of stuff. And that's the third piece altogether. But it's going to take all of these things because I don't want to give up on plus minus. That we don't know if you if you're going to give me all of what Audi refers to as peripherals in baseball we think of as peripherals you know exit velocity if you're going to give me those you still have to aggregate them up I agree. to know what actual performance is we don't know how to aggregate that's a very complicated thing this aggregation so you have to sometimes you get the peripherals at the fundamental level but then you got to go to the other end and say what does performance look like what's the plus minus look like and you've got to triangulate between these things to come up with the truth yeah I also like the idea it relates to the earlier point of drafting and trading potential picks I like the idea of clustering let's imagine we found out that Joe Burrow is very very good he's great but he's in a cluster of 10 other quarterbacks who will also be good then you start to say to yourself okay I could have what appears to be the top person in this cluster or I could have maybe the second best person in this cluster but the top person from the wide receiver cluster the top person from the running back cluster so I like the idea of clustering in this case because it makes you realize that Joe Burrow isn't in a set by himself. Yeah. So that's, that's lovely. And I, it struck me for the first time as you're saying this that, that I mean, clustering is really becoming popular. In fact, sometimes people are using it when they don't need to use it. But it strikes me that if you're looking to re- kind of regress, kind of back, you know, regress to something, what do you regress to? One idea of 
would be, well, you get a cluster of guys that have looked like Joe Burrow over over the past, whatever, 10, 20 years. And you would expect his performance to be something between what it looks like today, based yeah. on this one season, and what the average of that cluster would be, something like that. Just to point out, uh, most of us know Nate Silver, but he made his career doing that for baseball. Yeah, and it's, it's baseball. the most elegant, I think, still to this day, kind of solution to sort of how do you predict a baseball player's performance into the future. Well, that was our Roger Clemens paper. We compared Roger yeah. Clemens' performance to other players that looked similar over a certain trajectory. We then forecast it out, and his looked abnormal compared to yeah, players right. that had had but, his trajectory. But so Nate Silver did Piccata, and it was his, yeah. it was his invention. Right. It was yeah. very crude. I mean, unbelievably crude. And he would look at, at physical attributes as well as actual on the field performance attributes and he basically took by five players in a little group and he just averaged them forward and he dressed you down and that was that and then he left baseball and became a, an election <laughs> analyst <laughs> all right fellas that's been the first quarter of you're listening to wharton moneyball on business radio welcome back Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow. Five-plus coming up on six years collaboration here at Wharton Moneyball. Faculty all delighted to have you guys. You can jump in here and join us. Please do. one 844 That's one 844 7866. Email us businessradio at com or hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyball, at WMoneyball. Rolling into our first guest segment of the show, Seth Walder. He is a sports analytics writer for ESPN. He is kind of the mouthpiece of one of the most sophisticated sports analytics group anywhere, what they've got going on up there. And ESPN is super impressive. We've had Seth on the show a number of times, longtime friend of the show. Delighted to have him back. Good morning, Seth. Good morning, guys. How are you? Doing fine, doing fine. Where are you calling in from this morning? I'm home in Brooklyn. You're, you're, you're home in Brooklyn. Oh, I just heard. You, you guys are expecting. Is that right? Yes, we are uh, We are on the launch. That is correct. All right. Exactly. Well, we'll, ho- we'll hope that things hold off for another half hour while we got you. Appreciate your <laughs> yeah. carving out some attention for us at this momentous time in your life. Do you have any other kids on the ground already, Seth? No, this is the first one. Oh, he my decided, goodness. I guess, to, to hang in there so I could come on the show today. <laughs> now he's got the green light after that. All right, all right. Well, listen, um, you just came off of an exciting innovation there, the the analytics broadcast for the college football championship game. How'd that go? What was that like for you? Yeah, it was it was really cool. You know, it's something that really all credit goes to Brad Edwards, who is the, the main analyst on the show. Um, our, our college football college football analyst, he, he's really wanted to do this for a long time. We all have, but he's really been pushing for it. And I think uh, he, you know, he made it a, really a priority to, to do something like this. We have this college football megacast for, for folks who don't know where uh, you can watch, obviously, the main broadcast on ESPN, but then we have all these different <clears throat> separate broadcasts uh, that you can watch depending on – uh, you know, your kind of interest level in the game or what, what sort of different interests you might have. The, the most famous one, I think, is the coach's film room, sure, which sure. we've had, you know, where you, where, which is, which is excellent, where you have coaches uh, go in there and, and, and sort of talk about the game from a, from a real 
deep dive X's and O's perspective. Uh, and so Brad wanted to do an analytics broadcast. And so what we did is uh, he he was kind of the main analyst there with uh, Matt Matt Schick, and then they would bring in uh, me and and Brian Burke and Paul Sabin to kind of just throw our voices in there, uh, just just really testing it out. It was a great opportunity to experiment we talked about all the things that i think your listeners would probably expect right like the fourth down decision two-point stuff talking about epa and win probability and, and and stuff like that and i think it's just a great chance to get all that stuff on air and, and really just tinker with and figure out what what makes sense so i felt like it went you know for for the sort of first go at it i felt like it went pretty well i don't know if you guys watch please tell me i mean uh uh, we were, we, thought it was, we we disco- we discovered we all discovered that it existed because of this show. We didn't we didn't know that it was there. We were all kind of like, oh my god, we missed Seth's broadcast. Um, we will pay more attention to it next time around. Hopefully, you guys won't hold out just for the championship game next time. It sounds like an interesting way to do it. I'm curious. We we've just talked through the game a little bit. I mean, how do you think? How do you think a viewer of that broadcast would have seen the game differently? Did you guys see things evolving? I mean, so a, a beautiful story would be, yeah, it was tight in the first half, but we could tell LSU was really playing the better game, and it <laughs> proved out in this. I don't know that that was possible, but is there anything like that that happened in your discussions? Uh, no, I can't say that we forecasted LSU's uh, LSU's comeback uh, when you know when they fell down behind. I, I, I think that the interesting things that we probably that we uncovered were um, talking about one. I thought probably the best moment of the show was when. Uh, I guess it was, yeah, Clemson was driving down 11 points and Brian came on early, early in the third quarter. And Brian came on to talk about why they ought to go for two here uh, if they mm-hmm. end up scoring. Mm-hmm. And they, most coaches probably wouldn't. And uh, so they, they brought him on. They, he, they ended up scoring while he was on. And Dabo did go for two. Right. And I think that was that was great because then you sort of anticipate and they were successful they, they were successful and, then, yeah, and exactly, the, yeah. the announcers yeah. on the main broadcast were talking about well this is one of those new analytics that's right, right. They said it. And i was thankful <laughs> that they were successful because they're very process they're not process oriented on the main channel they're outcome oriented that's right that's right well that's that's good fun seth that's one of the higher profile bits that you've done but you're you're doing this kind of work in some form this is kind of your job essentially is to com- is my sense of it anyway is that you're communicating and translating what that analytics crew is doing and you're doing that my impression is you've done that with producers kind of in house and you're doing that increasingly externally facing they're bringing you on to shows as to be kind of a, in some is this fair to say is kind of a mouthpiece for the analytics group there no, definitely, definitely fair to say, and and yeah, exactly. So my 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 job is twofold to both do that uh, internally, right, spread the gospel of analytics internally, and uh, really try and get our metrics out there as much as possible. Not because we want it, but because we think it really helps ESPN to to use the stuff that we have, and then also yeah, externally. So that's like yeah, sometimes like writing articles or or going on shows myself. I've been lucky to go on. Uh, daily wager uh, this whole football season uh, regularly and that's been just like a really great outlet uh, for me and our team to get our stuff out there because that's a show that uh, for folks who haven't watched it's our it's our gambling show uh, and it's the I got to give I'm sucking up here but I got to give the producers a lot of credit because they're they're very open and willing to to throw whatever we've got out there because I think for a sports betting audience you want 
what what's the you know what's the newest the latest the most sophisticated way you can look at this and so they never bat an eye when we're throwing a new metric out there mm-hmm. they want that stuff yeah, that's they, interesting. they want you know when you talk about pass rush win rate or something like that and they're like yeah please like throw it up there we put like some I, we threw some I had some scatter plots of like uh, pass rushers who were double teamed the most first uh, versus how much they win, and they were like, "Let's just throw that on air," you know. And so, it's, it, uh, it's, which I wasn't even expecting, and, and and so they've been really great. It's a really great chance for us to get our stuff out. Seth, that's funny. I hadn't thought about it that way before. With that gambling community, it is like this omnivorous, omnivorous animal. You can feed them kind of anything, and they'll take it. You know. But but hold on. Let's. Do you feel any responsibility? to give them the, the materials actually useful. You know, they're so omnivorous. It's almost like, okay, this isn't very good for you, but you're, I know you'll be enthusiastic and eating it. I'm not saying you're doing that, but some people certainly do. And so how, yeah. is there a, how do you think about the ethical piece of it um, in terms of whether the information we're giving them is actually bettable, whether it actually provides the edge that sometimes they think it does? Well, I think – one thing about the show is, well, firstly, what I what I first saw when I came on was like, well, okay, I have this interesting storyline. I don't know what exactly the betting angle is off of it, and uh, the show's philosophy is always, well, let's you know, let's if it's a good sports, uh, if it's good sports information, right? Let's put it, let's let's talk about it and have a good story out there, and then if the betters that they want to figure out a way to to make that into actionable information, you know, they they can always find a way, even if. Even if, like the sports book we're working with doesn't have a, a line on the exact thing, mm-hmm. I think the inform- I think what I would say is the, the let's see how would I phrase this. I guess like the the information we're providing, the information that I'm talking about is stuff that I believe in. It's information that I think is good. Uh, how that pertains to the to the betting line, like I, I, I'm not usually saying like JJ Watt is. Uh, getting double teamed a lot, and now he's coming back, and that's worth you know a third of the point, a third right. of a point on the total, right? That that second part of the calculation there, while we we might do that for some things, like if a quarterback is injured or something, but if but the second part of the calculation, I think is maybe is maybe on the better to figure out. We're just providing you with information that uh, I think, especially with our player tracking stuff, you know, most people probably don't have, and so I think we are adding in some way. To the conversation, uh, I don't. I don't think we're necessarily leading. I don't know how you phrased it, but uh, you know what I'm saying, right? Well, like, well uh, one of the one of the. I have I have less concerns about you because I believe in your shop. I mean, you guys have some of the best people in the industry back there, and you've put these things together in this amazing way. I mean, really, you've advanced the conversation. You continue to advance the conversation because you've got this great platform. It's great for the community that you've taken this platform and married it to one of the best sports analytics groups anywhere. So y'all providing the information is less dangerous than some others who might provide that information. We're talking to Seth Walder. Seth is ESPN sports analytics writer. He's kind of the front man for the sports analytics shop up there. You can follow him on Twitter at Seth Walder. Fantastic follow on Twitter at Seth Walder. He's calling in this morning from Brooklyn about to have his first kid, I believe. So listen, Seth, I, I like what you're talking about with the with the data and then converting it into something that's, that's actionable. You don't really need to do that. But I think as a listener, it's very interesting 
to hear what you have to say from a, from enjoyment perspective to understand what's happening on the on the on the field much better using the analytics. But you got to put translate into an effect size into a currency that yeah. we can can all kind of use. And ultimately, that's got to be in football points, right? I mean, if you're going to tell me that JJ Watt is double teamed and that means something, well, you, that's nice to know. I wouldn't have seen it on my own because I don't know what to look at necessarily. But you got to translate this into something that we can compare and 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 that's probably the next stage. Are you, are you doing that? Are you yeah. thinking of doing that? Yeah, I think um, yes is uh, I totally agree with you. Yeah, I don't want to say, by the way, I don't want to say like we're not, uh, you know, we're, yeah, we're like falling short of, of, of needing to do that or, or not translating to points. I mean, we're not translating to points, but not because we're worried about like misleading betters or something like that. Um, I think we absolutely, yeah, that is absolutely the goal is to push things forward to where we can translate all these things into, the, into there. But I think what we're still ultimately in fairly early days when it comes to all the player tracking work that we're doing. And, and yeah, we will, I think, eventually want to translate it into, into points. It's something kind of along the lines of what um, our colleague Paul Saban's do, been doing some work with uh, sort of like plus-minus statistics in football. Um, and so I think we're, we're maybe veering towards that. I think in college football, we're trying to uh, make our model maybe a little bit more player-based uh, in the future. And all of these things, yes, we have to get it down to a point value in order to like throw that into our maybe our big models in terms of forecasting. I think that that's absolutely right. No, keep in mind for a show like Daily Wager, you can also be thinking about like props or uh, you know. Daily fantasy, all those things might not have to do with literally the literally right, right. That's who true. wins or the point spread, something like that. So we always have that in the back of our mind for the audience. Well, you mentioned Paul. He was at the Carnegie Mellon um, conference this fall presenting his work where he's building up a player-based model for um, teams, which is something, of course, that baseball's had for years, but and basketball, especially the batters in basketball have it. It's really tough to do in football with all those guys on the field. But Saban's doing some really, really cool stuff. These guys would love it. I'm sitting around here with a bunch of Bayesian statisticians. You'd be happy to know that Seth's working with guys who are full-on Bayesian statisticians. So Paul's work is fully Bayesian. It's really neat what those guys are doing. Brian McDonald doing the basketball stuff. Tell us something yeah. that you're excited about. The work coming out of those, that shop, What what is something you're excited about right now? Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm – I can't, for me, be, you know, working in NFL, working in football, I cannot, I cannot. It's the thing I'm, more, I'm always the most excited about. What, what I was so lucky to have is be working on a team with someone like Brian Burke, who, yeah. you know, I'll wake up on a Monday and he'll be like, okay, guys, over the weekend, here's what I did. And just like, he's like I built a new tool, here you go. Um, I think, you know, <laughs> like the, the, the newest stuff that Brian's done so like an example would be like, so he built his, our pass coverage metrics uh, earlier this season, and we and we got them like fully integrated, uh, and and we have we're starting to have so many tools that it's like we I almost we almost don't have time to fully analyze everything through through the lens of them during the season because uh, so much is going on. But you start to add these new things, and we we really start to pick up layers on the game. Brian's next step, the thing that he sort of just got out the door here, is. Uh, is route route work, route classifying, and route combinations, yep. and that's something. It's like we don't have it like fully integrated in our system. We got it like just one big messy CSV, and it's like uh, you know, it's like a, a big giant sheet, and you can you can you can still get stuff out of it. I've used some stuff out of there, but to really dive into that and learn uh, learn from that, I think it's something I'm really excited about, especially to do in the off season. I think the thing that I'm 
finding myself, and I think Brian would say the same, is that we are learning more about X's and O's in football yeah. than we ever really had before. Yeah. You know, almost ironically, through through analytics because of all this player tracking work, and and that I feel like I'm becoming a, a smarter analyst as a result of that, and so I, I think that's great. Yep, Brian talked about that when he's building that route recognition program. He had to sit with former players to to he could yeah. do some, but he had to sit with former players to really understand how to classify those things. Seth, give us an example of some of the work you you had. This you, sacks are an interesting an interesting statistic. They're important kind of misunderstood you guys have advanced our understanding of that a little bit can you tell us what you what you did with this sex created analysis oh yeah that's like a it's almost like a it's almost like a small side stat that we just did i think last off season where we talked about uh, we were just in a meeting and we had this we were talking about sacks and pass rush win rate and i think we just said you know we credit sacks to the player that finishes the play that records the records what we think of as a sack what if we just like flip that and we credited the player who earned the first pass rush the first player to beat his defender mm. uh beat his i'm sorry beat his blocker on the play and instead and on a on a sack play and give him credit for the sack the point being that sometimes you know anyone that's watched football knows that sometimes like uh you know the defensive end comes off the edge and he beats his man and the quarterback has to like scramble up because because he's got a rusher coming at him, and then all of a sudden he runs right into the defensive tackle who's right. sacked, even though the, the end was the one that really did it. So, uh, so it was like, okay, let's just create this little sacks created stat where it's, it goes to the first guy. And so uh, it's just interesting, a guy like Nadarius Smith, who had 13 and a half sacks this year, he actually had led the league with 20, quote, sacks created, uh, which indicates that the pressure that he was causing was uh, go, you know, helping out his teammates in terms of their production. And Zadarius Smith, by the way, double-teamed at a higher rate that, uh, as an edge rusher than anybody else in the league. So he, th- those two things in concert, I think, really help tell you that he is a, uh, a very effective part of that Packers defense. And Seth, that actually raises a, 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 an additional nuance that would be nice to have in there. Another way to create sacks is to require double-teams that makes it easier for mm-hmm. your linemates to get sacks, right? You're not even going to pick up on that part of it. Absolutely, yeah. Like one thing I want to do is is really just we have our pass rush win rate. I think you know there's some obvious next steps to like just you know you could do like a double team adjusted rate or something like that. It, double teams are very effective. It's really hard. It's really hard to get by. I mean, I knew that sounds obvious, but you know you always want to check and like double teams are very effective at preventing uh, just about anybody from getting by. So if a team wants to commit to stopping someone, they can. It makes it easier for their team. But we need to know just we need to know what the impact is on the likelihood of somebody else gets a sack. If you require yeah. a double team, you, you should get credited with the increased probability that one of your line mates. So that and that's an estimatable but number al- presumably. Also, doesn't that just leave receivers more open? I mean, where do they, how does this move when you double team a player? This is a basic well, on question. The line, I, it usually leaves one of your it usually leaves one of your line mates open. So I mean, it yeah. would be a great way of kind of also evaluating, you know, kind of contribution. If, if you're talking about player evaluation, as far as like what player you bring into your team, if you've already got one of these guys like Zadarius Smith, attracting another player to that line has got to make you be a little bit easier on on the sell right. side of things, right? Because you could kind of essentially demonstrate what the what the value yeah. added to yeah. them of Zadarius Smith For is. Sure. For sure, Seth. We've only got a couple of minutes. Can you give give us your thoughts on the the conference championships? We're down to four. Any any ESPN analytics based insights into the final four teams we have here in the NFL? 
Sure. So, okay. So on the, let's go with the NFC. The two things I noticed, one is this isn't super analytics based, but Richard Sherman, the thing I was looking at at the last time the Packers and 49ers played. So Richard Sherman, uh, he is, he's obviously having a great year. He's targeted, you know, NFL next gen stats. So he's targeted 14% of the time. That's really low for an outside corner. And what's fascinating about him is he, he plays on the one side. And like, sometimes people say that, you know, this corner plays on one side only, and he actually does move around. If you look at Richard Sherman's heat map, it is stark. He only plays on the, from the offense's perspective, the right side. Mm-hmm. So last time the Packers played them, obviously Devontae Adams is their best wide receiver. He is a, uh, you know, he plays on, he'll obviously play on both sides. Everybody does as a receiver. And if you look at his route map from that game, it was really basically really quiet over there on the right side. Right. He had just like two really short completions right. uh, over there. And then they took deep shots with him when he went to the left side. So I think okay. when, you, when Adams goes to the left side, that's key. Now, Akella Witherspoon was the corner over there at the time, and he played really well that game, but he's been really bad since then. Uh, and they replaced him with Emmanuel Mosley. And I think uh, Mosley played really well since then. But whoever it is, Witherspoon or Mosley versus Adams. It's good. Uh, it's good. I mean, that, that is one matchup. Okay, Seth, you got matchup. 30 seconds on the AFC. 30 seconds on the AFC. Derrick Henry, the, what, what the Titans have done running the ball is really interesting to me. Uh, and the Chiefs are awful, truly awful at stopping the run. But uh, ultimately, I, I do think this will be an interesting case. I mean, I see that matchup, and I say, okay, that's a problem for the Chiefs. But, look, anyone listening to the show knows how much more efficient, how much more effective the passing attack is. Uh, and uh, Patrick Mahomes, the Chiefs offense, they ought to be able to uh, take care of the Titans, I think, just because of that advantage in the passing mm-hmm. game. Mm-hmm. All right. Listen, Seth, thank you for taking the time, especially today. We wish you the best with your work, but especially this week, we wish you the best with the home front as well. Seth Welder. Seth Walder, you can follow him at Seth Walder, ESPN analyst. That is the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with all my buddies, all my collaborators, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. You guys can be here. Give us a shout. We'd love to hear from you. 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 942 7866. Hit us up on Twitter at W Moneyball is our handle there at W Moneyball. We stay in touch with all our guests. We tweet occasionally about the world of sports analytics. We're speaking of guests just off the phone with Seth Walder, longtime friend of the show. Seth Walder helping run the analytics group up there at ESPN. Great follow on Twitter as well. Always kicking out some interesting things. In this half hour, delighted to have Alexandra Mandricki. Alexandra is the director of hockey administration for the NHL's newest club. They're not on the ice yet. They're not on the ice yet, but Seattle will be playing hockey in next season, the 2020-2021 season. I'm sorry, the first one's 2021, the 21-22 season. They've got a little bit of ways to go. 
but Alexander is employee number one, essentially, and we thought it'd be fun to have her on the show. Good morning, Alexander. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, I had my coffee, but here in Seattle, it's still very early. <laughs> we are always super appreciative of people from the West Coast. So thank you. Extra, extra thank you for joining us at such an early hour. But I am glad that you're caffeinated. Being... It's still dark, I would guess. Yeah, okay. right. It's still oh. dark out there. Alexander, dang. For, for a few more hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that time, this time of year. Um, listen, what, what, is, what is life like running a hockey team when you don't have any players? What's going on? Is it just coffee drinking all day long? What else is going on out there? Well, coffee drinking is very big in Seattle. And, you know, not only do we not have players, but for a while it was really just me in the hockey side of the office. Right. Uh, we recently we hired a quantitative analyst. Danny Chu. We know uh, Danny. We know Danny. We're we're impressed with anybody off of the uh, anybody off of the Luke Bourne tree is great. Yes, yes, he's very impressive, and I'm very excited. He started last Monday, so uh, it's exciting to kind of have someone to talk to at the office instead of just uh, waiting for my phone to ring. For those currently working remotely, our scouts and our current GM and assistant general manager well can you tell us about the gm search because for a long time you were there before you had a general manager and then you guys went out and hired this guy is it his name name ron francis some hockey guy named ron francis (laughs) now you're general manager one of the most accomplished players in the history of the nhl i'm curious what that what was it like to be there before him and then what was that search like and then how's it been since since he's joined Sure, yeah. I mean, in some ways, it was a little bit scary coming into an organization and realizing that you don't really know who your boss is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I really enjoyed meeting the leadership. Uh, our CEO, Todd Laywicki, has a great reputation throughout the industry. Um, but, you know, ultimately, the general manager is who you're going to be working with and reporting to. So uh, that was a little scary coming in, but it was exciting to really be a part of that process. And, you know, we did quite a bit of research and you know on the different candidates that were being considered and ultimately ron has such a great reputation he was actually one of the um first teams when he was in carolina he hired eric tolsky uh, now their vice president of hockey strategy and research with mm-hmm. the carolina hurricane so mm-hmm. um, he really showed a investment in that side of the game and when you had conversations with him you could tell that he just wants to continue pushing that forward. Mm-hmm. Well, that feels this is too much of a generalization, but the 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 old time players are not usually at the vanguard of, of sports analytics. In fact, sometimes those are the folks who are kind of standing in the way of progress in terms of in, in, from the perspective of the analytics community. So here you have a guy who is so accomplished that pre, his accomplishments on the ice and as a really as a front office guy mostly predate analytics and yet you're saying that he's interested and collaborative and wants to push that frontier yeah absolutely and i think it you know it says a lot when these guys you know ron francis didn't have to have a career in hockey after hockey right oh wow Uh, no (laughs) they have such a passion for the game and he really became i would say a student of kind of the hockey operations side of the game working in player development as a scout um, a coach really learning all sides of the business and you know, what I always tell people is, yeah, you're you're met with resistance on, with some people more than others, and perhaps that correlates with them being ex-players, but ultimately, it's everyone's job to win. And if you can show someone how you're going to help the team, you know, 
even just get one more win. Mm-hmm. Um, that's value. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in some ways, that's job security, which mm-hmm. everyone is looking for. So. So, Alexander, this is Eric Bradlow. I could imagine on the analytics side of hockey, there's lots of, let's call it broad areas you could think about applying analytics. One might be, as you mentioned, scouting. Another one could be player contracts. Another one could be on-ice types of decisions. Another one could be, let's say, even from the business side, you know, selling tickets, etc. Where do you see, you know, as you wake up in the morning and say, we could do all of these, but in some sense trying to do all at once might be a bad thing. Where do you see your first investment? In which area do you think you'll apply analytics broadly to Seattle's team? Yeah, so first I do want to comment. We have a great sort of team on the business side. We have a VP strategy, VP of strategy and analytics, Kendall Tyson, who really is helping push, you know, ticketing marketing forward in terms of analysis. So I stay away from that and let Kendall run the show there. Um, but yeah, I think on the hockey operations side, we touched on kind of all the components, the on ice strategy, working with the coaches. Scouting and, you know, amateur scouting versus scouting players that are currently, you know, playing in the AHL or the NHL. Those are really different beasts. Um, There's certainly a big element of it when you come to, you know, contract comparables and managing the salary cap. And then sport, sport science is another area where, you know, we're really teams are starting to push the limits, uh, emulating uh, teams and other sports that have seen success there. And and what we're really focused on right now, I would say, is the professional scouting side of things, at least currently as we prepare for the expansion draft in June 2021. Right. And then as we get closer, we'll start thinking about the coaching on ice strategy. But we're we're a ways away, as Cade commented, we're October 2021. So it it feels far away, but it'll sneak up us on us. Sneak up on us quickly. So, Alexander, this is Adi Weiner. I'm going to follow up on Eric's kind of broad question and be more specific. So um, analytics has been around in baseball, football, basketball for a long time, and we know kind of what the major contributions were and the difficulties in getting them accepted. But hockey is, uh, is for me at least, and I think some of many of our listeners, is much more um, opaque. We don't really understand what it, what it, what it has contributed. So can you, can you tell us something? You know, is there some, some sort of old-fashioned way of evaluating players? So in baseball, the biggest way, that was the first transition of analytics, was a new evaluation system to kind of recognize that, that certain things were more forecastable and more valuable rather than the old way. Is there something in hockey you can tell us that that I can learn about how analytics is using and potentially changing the game? Sure. I mean, a relatively basic concept is hockey, you're you're played at different uh, team strengths. So most of the game is played at five on five where there's five skaters and a goalie on each side. Um, When your team's on the power play, you have a man advantage, whether that's five on four, five on three. Uh, four on three Uh, and then you know when you're on the opposite side of that you're at a disadvantage when you're on the penalty kill Um, and then as kind of a fourth state there's this scenario where the other team is trying to score a goal at the end of the game and so they'll pull their goalie so essentially there's an empty net Um, and when you just go on to like the NHL box score page you're you're looking at goals and assists which in a lot of ways is how the public, I would say, evaluates players and teams too. Uh, goals are very important, um, but it doesn't necessarily divide out. Okay, of those goals, how many were scored at five on five? How many were scored on the power play? How many were scored when the opponent didn't even have a goalie in their net? 
And there's definitely within those, you know, empty net goals aren't as uh, predictive of future goal scoring, right? It's a little bit of an easier goal to score, and it's heavily dependent on your team being in that scenario where you're leading. So even when we're just talking about evaluating players on scoring, it's really important to, I guess, divide up into those different team states. Um, and that's a pretty easy concept for most in front offices to understand. Alexander, one follow-up on that. The, 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 the percentage of time played five-on-five five is much higher than power play. But it, it feels like I've seen something in the last couple of years that, that the claim of which, the, I've only got the residual here after a couple of years, but the claim was something like, yeah, but basically games are entirely determined by power play. I think the rate is doubled. The, the rate, scoring rate is doubled in power play of approximately. Is that about right? So, so how do you weigh the preponderance of the events being five-on-five five versus maybe the leverage of the situation being higher on power play? Sure. I mean, I think when you're evaluating, let's say you're evaluating a player that they have no power play time to a player that has three minutes of power play time a game on average, it's just important to realize that, you know, maybe the player on the power play has 20 goals on the season. Mm -hmm. Um, In aggregate, the player that never saw any power play time has 15 but how do their scoring rates compare, you know, at five on five? Yes. Um, you're kind of normalizing person. for opportunity. For personnel evaluation, you're normalizing for opportunity. It's an expected value. adjusts for yeah. the, the context. It's, uh, okay. I mean, hockey is very nicely modeled by a Poisson process. So essentially you want a heterogeneous rate. So, do, by the way, do guys, do guys, is there is there contention with, on the bench for being able to play on the power play units? I mean, since the opportunities are so much higher, right. and you put your best, you know, I guess you put your best offensive players out there. How how is it inside a team on on? Oh, I should be on that, or you know, or no, it's mine. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to I guess firsthand those dynamics, but certainly you know, players want to be on the ice as much as possible, and they definitely they're not. They're not stupid. They know that more goals are scored while uh, they're on the power play. And the same honestly goes for when the other team has uh, pulled their goaltender and there's an empty net, right? You see that and you realize, hey, uh, I, I might score here. Right. Uh, and which will pad ultimately that goals or assist that. So it's definitely like a, it's a challenge. And that's where, you know, so much of coaching is just personality management, I would say. Um so fortunately, I don't have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Alexandra, uh, this is Shane Jensen. I want to kind of t- turn to the probably your number one thing on your plate for the next like year or two, which is that expansion draft in 2021. Just how do you prepare for something like that? It's a relatively unprecedented kind of dynamic to, to have to prepare for. Except that you've got this kind of very recent history of what Las Vegas did. And, and sort of, I guess, how do you prepare for that expansion trap, tra- draft? And also kind of how do you, how do you even have, what, what are your expectations for that, given kind of how unusual Las Vegas' first season was? Yeah, Vegas certainly set the bar very high. Um, I always joke with people, the only way we can do better than Vegas is actually win the Cup our first year. Right. Uh, since they made it to the finals. So, you know, a great job by that organization and those players uh, we can certainly look and see you know how did teams behave um, and you know what did they give up quite a few side deals were made um, during that expansion draft what, what does that so mean a lot of Alex what does that mean side um, de- side deals yeah so I guess for those who aren't familiar uh, every team can protect 
a certain number of players, either seven forwards, three skaters, and a goalie, or three defensemen and a goalie, or eight skaters and a goalie. And then we essentially get to pick anyone else who isn't on that protected list. Mm-hmm. Um, so what teams did, let's say that you really like your fourth defenseman, but you could only protect three mm-hmm. of your current defensemen. Mm-hmm. They might say, hey, take this other forward instead of this defenseman, and I'll throw in a first-round pick. Oh, wow. Um, and, and, and that's so, legal. That's legal, yeah. Uh, and those are registered transactions with the league. Oh, so okay. It's, uh, it's very regulated. The league keeps a close eye on it. But, you know, that's how Vegas was really able to accrue. They didn't just get uh, 30 players. They ultimately got 30 players plus draft picks plus some other players right. thrown in through side deals. So we're looking at that. And, you know, from a analytics perspective, it's, that's where a lot of the pro scouting comes in and really – we have this question that has been answered in a lot of other organizations that we haven't quite quite got to yet, which is which players do we like? Um, we don't really have a scouting book on players. We have five pro scouts helping us build that out this year. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we have to build out those sort of models uh, to develop rankings and uh, you know, really be able to inform our decision-making. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Alexandra Mendricki. She is the Director of Hockey Administration for the NHL's forthcoming Seattle franchise. She heads hockey strategy and research up there. She's basically employee number one. She was she predates even the hiring of Ron Francis as the general manager. So, Alexandra, this is Eric Bradog, and I want to build on Shane's question. And you even just mentioned about rankings. How would you think about the following? Um, do you have to rank positions first like for example if you ranked if you could get i'll make this up if you could get the someone in the 90th percentile of defensemen but somebody only in the 75th percentile of goal scorers how would you weigh off the two of those like do you first have to come up with an oval overall prioritization by position and then decide you know how do we draft within that position or how do you think about that problem yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly a lot of Vegas's success was driven by their uh, goaltending, uh, and they were able to secure an extremely uh, good veteran goalie and Mark Andre Fleury. Uh, so I think goaltending is definitely a priority for us because if you can't stop pucks from going into your net, it's hard to win games. Um, but you know, I think we'll be trying to take the best players available to us knowing that, you know, we have to draft a certain number of each position. Uh, so there will be some give and take there. Isn't uh, the goalie position the hardest to forecast? It it can be, yes. it's uh, And it's probably it's one of the, or it probably is the hardest position to play, I would say, as well. Um, yeah, it's, you know, the so, good goalies are, you, you can kind of see their performance at a high level, but, you know, there's surprises every year. If so, you look at, uh, you know, Jordan Bennington in St. Louis last year, who kind of came out of nowhere and was able to sustain an extremely high level, and he's done the same this year. So, it's, uh, they, they give analysts headaches. What, yeah, what do you do given, given that? Because basically you've said it's the most, imp- we want to focus on it. it's the most important position to start with, but also it's the hardest to forecast. So therefore, what is the strategy on how you acquire? Yeah, one would argue that you should use your, you know, your leverage, if you will, to get predictable players and then take some chances. Yeah, or if there, and if there are no predictable players, then you want as many chances as possible. That's right. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, there's been quite a lot of work done in the public space, I would say, for goalies. And it's a similar, you know, you have to look at if you're playing behind a really good defensive team, it's maybe easier for a goalie to have a higher save percentage. So people talk about expected save percentage um, and that sort of thing to evaluate performance. But, you know, and then, then the question becomes, well, is that, just because you outperform your expected save percentage one year, are you likely to do it again right. the next year? What happens when you switch teams? Um, and that's where, you know, we won't necessarily be able to utilize it too much uh, as we look towards the expansion draft. But that's why analysts are uh, salivating at the thought of getting our hands on this puck and player tracking data that the league is rolling out for playoffs this year. Uh, yeah, and, and j- context. Just to give you an extra headache, or, or, or you know, tell tell you what you already know, um, you, you're going to have to try and formulate, like, evaluate, like, this goaltender. How would they perform on our team? Where the rest of the team is also a, an unknown moving piece as well. Usually, when you're about when you're a, a general manager trying to figure out which <laughs> yeah. goaltender to get, you can at least condition on the other players that you have on the team. And so I. You know, I, I guess it's it's extra going to be you know it's it's an extra challenge I guess to kind of do that with all the other moving pieces that you guys have as 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 kind of forming a team from scratch. Absolutely, yeah. A lot of times, I mean, when you're looking at goalies, when you're looking at forwards, defensemen, you're kind of thinking about plugging one person in and thinking about team chemistry in that way. But you know, we're essentially we have to build out the entire uh, team chemistry. So it's definitely a challenge. Alexander, you just mentioned that you guys are salivating over data that are about to come out. You said puck and player data that the NHL are, are debuting for the playoffs. What What is that versus what you've had? Our impression is that there has been good motion tracking data available for teams. And what kind of painful is that it's not available publicly. What data are you talking about, the puck and player data? Yeah, so there's been different vendors that have provided some data to teams. Uh, based on optical tracking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's coming out the league is they've been in the process of developing it for a few years now, but there's going to be a chip in the puck and a chip uh, somewhere on the players, and we're going to get location data kind of multiple times a second for both of those okay. entities. So where before we basically had uh, very little idea, unless you were kind of handling that, on your own of where all the other players were when certain events were happening on the ice. Uh, now we're going to be able to have all that contextual information. That's it's surprising to me. I, I, so I get the difference between the technologies, but I would have thought that the optical would have been sufficient to tell you all 12 players all the time. Is it just that the optical is like that much higher noise in, in, in hockey where the, the pace of play is faster than, and say basketball where it's been kind of the, the industry standard for a few years? Yeah, I think so. Basketball is a little bit slower, so they've had more success, and you know their ball is a little bit bigger than the puck. Um, the the other issue players move when, slower. <laughs> yeah, um, w- when you're talking about those optical tracking, most companies are just utilizing even like the media feed, so you don't necessarily even have all the players in frame. So while uh, some of right. those companies, okay. you can determine the location of the other players that the camera can see. Um, you don't necessarily have the positioning of all those that makes players. it. That makes a ton of sense. That's one of the things about hockey. I've always felt that hockey is the game where the watching it live 
is the biggest discrepancy watching it live versus watching on TV because you miss the shift changes. You don't see what's going on on half the ice half the time, but then live you get to see all that action. So you're saying with the chips now, you'll know all the time exactly where everybody is. Alexander, a question that's, that's common, an issue, a, a methodology that's common across all these sports. Increasingly, the foundation of analytics in sports is some kind of expected scoring model, expected goals or expected points. You got to have that first, and then everything kind of works off of that. People are doing it in football now. They've done it in baseball from way back. It's the first they, thing that ever was done. First thing the ever. Markov so you, model for state space model for. So everybody, you kind of have to get that first. What is the state of the expected goals model in hockey? Because what happens is someone's going to have a model, and it's going to you know, allow you to produce some numbers. But there's always a question of how good that model is. And when they show us now, now we have next-generation stats on NFL broadcasts, they'll say, well, the expected catch there was 13%, and he caught it. Isn't that impressive? You always kind of wonder, well, what's that based on? Is that How good is that how number? How did they do that? Yeah. yeah, so where is it in hockey right now? Since that is such a foundational element, how good is that model right now in hockey, and what kind of progress is being made on it? Yeah, I mean, I would say publicly the models are – pretty good uh that's based on really just the information the league provides so talking about you know the location of the shooter the as we discussed kind of like whether the shot was taken at five on five the power play um talking about you know was it off of a rebound and really those factors that are going to increase the likelihood that that shot becomes a goal um I think internally teams are using similar data points and maybe we just have a few more uh, to go off of. Um, so it's definitely like that. I would say, you know, we're not just counting shots, right? Like Corsi, Fenwick, those were the buzzwords um, of a few years ago, but now we're really looking at the quality of those shots. Do you get things, do you get as much detail as like the, the, the goaltender's position in net? I mean, I would think that that would be, for example, really important. But I don't know how well you observe it. Or how, or how much, really, how many, you know, again, if you don't have necessarily the tracking on all the other players on the ice, it's really about whether that shot, you know, the vision on that shot was unimpeded or not. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we're really excited to get our hands on the tracking data because um, okay. a lot of those factors you just named, we can't really say uh you know one reason i say i'm really excited about tracking data is when you're talking with coaches or you're talking with management and you're bringing up these expected goals type models and they'll say well does this account for like you know there's a player standing right in front of the shooter uh prepared to block the shot and you kind of have to say no um and you hope that it evens out but you know we know that really important to whether the shot becomes a goal. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're going to be able to start saying, like, yes, we actually have that data and have factored it in. So, Alexander, let me just ask you, um, what role, you talked about building a team, is there what role in your vision and also in the hockey world, like, do you give player, potential players wonderlick tests? Do you give them measures of things like grit that has been measured today? Do you give them, there are scales of teamwork. Do you take this kind of, if you'd like, softer data and use that at all in your thinking about evaluating players and building a team? Yeah, I mean, it's tough because as we're building out our NHL team, we can't necessarily send out a quiz to everyone currently playing in the NHL right. and ask them to right. something else. So you have a little more flexibility in doing that on the amateur side and looking at those sorts of measures. And, you know, that's, we certainly incorporate – 
uh, you know, there's interviews at the draft combine where we can conduct sort of, um, you know, we can ask the players different types of questions. Um, and like the scouting data, I guess, would in some ways be considered soft data. So when a scout right. is going to watch a game in uh, Manitoba, like watching a 17-year-old play, he's filling out a report. He's, you know, writing his little summary, but he's also rating the player in different areas. And, you know, ultimately, every amateur model is made better by incorporating that sort of qualitative data uh, into uh, the modeling technique. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Alexandra, can you give us can you give us a sense just as we wrap up here? Can you give us a sense of where you think analytics is in hockey across the across the entire NHL? So we could fairly characterize where things are in baseball, basketball, and football. I mean, every heck, all NBA teams send people to the Sloan Conference, for for example, and baseball, of course, it's it's ridiculous. It there's it varies. You know, I got twenty five guys for the Dodgers and the Yankees down to. Some people just have some teams just have a Two. couple. Yeah. In the NFL, a lot of variance in the NFL. A big shop in the NFL might be three or four people, and then some teams have almost nobody. Where are we in the NHL? And I know you you came out of this community, the War on Ice community, back in the day where everybody's blogging and talking about analytics, and all of a sudden people started disappearing. They started getting snapped up by the NHL teams. I don't have a great sense of what the the landscape is across the entire thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a scenario when I started with the Wild um, in 2015, there were, you know, maybe you could count on two hands the number of teams that had like a dedicated person on staff. Mm -hmm. And now I think we're at the point where you can count on one hand the number of teams that don't have at least one person dedicated. Okay. Um, The discrepancy that we're seeing, you know, maybe you have an analyst, but now teams are starting to hire the developers, the data engineers, uh, really recognizing mm. that one, we if we're going to figure out how to work with this puck and player tracking data, that's going to be a whole lot of data that maybe your regular statistically trained analyst is not trained uh, to work with. Mm-hmm. And you know, ultimately, an analyst's results are only as good as how they're communicated and distributed across the organization, which is why I think it's so important to invest in kind of the data engineer, developer side of things to truly make the information that's being generated visible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good to hear that there's that much progress being made, and it's great to hear that there's new data, um, and there's always interesting work coming out of, of your community, so I'm looking forward to see, seeing what comes next. Listen, we got a treat for you on the way out, but we need a little background first. How does a woman from Georgia who goes to Georgia Tech, how does she get into hockey? How does that happen? What was the, what was the background story? It's uh, I, I guess it's a predictable one or a stereotypical one in some sense. I uh, started watching hockey my senior year when I started dating my now husband mm-hmm. because he was obsessed with hockey. And I was told that if I wanted to spend time with him during a certain period, uh, you know, starting at seven o'clock on game nights, I was going to have to watch the game oh my. and uh, <laughs> figure it out. So and I had never really watched hockey, and I started watching, and I fell in love with it. So, oh, so let's let's test your knowledge because he's he's from Buffalo, is that right? So you're watching Sabres games back in the day. Do I have that right? Yes, that is correct. Okay, so what's the most famous goal in Buffalo Sabre history? Uh, the the no goal. Oh no! Well, I, we could we could argue about this one, but this the, I, y'all are too young for this. But he'll he'll know it. This is a treat for you. 
but it's also a treat for your husband. So this is the 1993 playoffs, first round, Sabres-Bruins, and it's the most famous goal in Sabre history. It's also one of the most famous calls. So we, we always have an excuse for playing good radio here. So we're going to give you the Rick Jenneret call of the Sabres knocking the Bruins out. The Sabres hadn't won a playoff series in 10 years at this point. They, they were up three games to nil in the first round. It goes to overtime. And Rick Jenneret, longtime Buffalo Sabres announcer, Rick Jenneret's going to give you the radio call. It's Whenever he went into the Hall of Fame, they played this call. Whenever the 25th anniversary came up, the, the newspapers in Buffalo are writing stories about this. This is the May Day goal. So in honor of Alexandra Mandricki and her first hockey love in the Buffalo Sabres, we give you the famous May Day call from Rick Jenneret. We'll do this on the way out. Alexandra, really appreciate your joining us. We love what you're doing out there. We will be pulling for Seattle even before you guys hit the ice. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Alexandra Mandricki, Director of Hockey Administration for the NHL. And here is Rick Jenneret, 1993, Buffalo Sabres. To LaFontaine, he gets tripped up, gets it to May, and over the line, he's May going in on goal, he shoots, he scores! to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can join us. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall. Great way to stay on top of things. We are just off the phone with Alexandra Mendricki. How much fun was that? Creating a hockey team, a professional hockey team out there in Seattle. First in the building. Alex, uh, hockey operations, stats and strategy, first in the building for those guys. Then they hire Ron Francis off and running. It's going to be a lot of fun to see what those guys do. Speaking of being able to reach, we have a phone call. We have a phone call from Mike in Alabama. Good morning, Mike. Welcome. Good morning, gentlemen. What question do you have for us this Thank morning? You. Well, I was hockey works well with this question, but I was also thinking from a basketball perspective. Um, I was wondering if the fitness tracking models were sound enough now that you could potentially gauge a player's fitness or timing of the game. So I'm thinking of like baseball, you have high leverage situations for certain pitchers. I'm wondering if a coach could strategize and model out to have his best players on the floor at their peak in high leverage situations. Mm -hmm. So I coach high school basketball and we have three really phenomenal players and then a bunch of role players. There are certain times of the game that we think that are high leverage situations where the tide or momentum changes. I guess you get into a momentum question, but I'm wondering they can't play the whole, based on fitness, our guys can't play the whole 32 minutes of the game. Yep. 
in high school basketball. So I'm trying to figure out when is the best optimum times and low leverage versus high leverage. I figure like the second quarter is lower leverage. Obviously the fourth quarter is high leverage. And I'm just wondering if down the road we'll be able to use fitness tracking to figure out their optimal times and also when to get them off the floor. Super interesting. Mike, thank you for the question. Adi's chomping at the bitter to jump in. Well, it's very hard. I don't think the fitness tracking is up to it at this point. So maybe in the future we'll get some sense. But conditioning matters, and the the, the complication of this is that you're going to save your player, and then it's the fourth quarter, and then you're behind, and you're like, okay, we're, we're sunk. So uh, uh, points scored in the beginning count the same as points scored at the end. It's one of my favorite Favorite, favorite mantras about about all sports, and that if you try to save, your, you reserve your top players for these high leverage, just as frequently, you'll just not end up using them. And this is the big right. controversy. You we can't see predict when they'll yeah, be, when and they, they may not happen at all. They may not happen. Yeah. So what the biggest problem, say, in baseball, which is a very important thing with the reliever reliever core, is that uh, is that you, you end up so frequently not pl- playing your best, your best pitchers because you didn't bring them in, because you didn't think it was a high leverage situation. So, mm-hmm. yeah. This is extremely complicated question, but I do think it matters. I think it matters a lot in basketball because because a player's performance erodes with usage, and this is load management. Yeah. And I think you're starting to see this at the professional so there's, level. There's really two issues. One is what is what is leverage and how reliably you can predict it and scheme for it. And then, and his question is okay. And then, how can we best understand their fitness and how that translates into performance so we can preserve them optimally. One thing I'll say about what Adi said is there's two questions that are easier questions, Sanchez, than the one Mike asked, which is a really good question. If you're sitting here and it's a high leverage situation and you say, look, I have, I'll use Mike's example, I have three great players, but two of them are exhausted. That's a question you potentially could answer. Another one would be, you'll use your Adi, your baseball example. It's bases loaded, we're up five to four, but it's the seventh inning not the ninth inning. Do I bring in my closer? Well, I know I'm in a high leverage situation, and if I don't bring in my closer and I use my fourth best reliever, we may be down nine to five come the ninth inning. Those are easier questions than the one Mike is asking because he's requiring you to be able to forecast when those high leverage situations are and also the usage of players once they get there. Mm-hmm. So conditional on the situation is much easier than unconditional on it. It also yeah. depends on who's going to be replacing you while right. you're resting. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure this is an accurate. Uh, assessment, but I did watch the college uh, football championship, and it did seem that as the game went on, things got sloppier. And that's probably because oh, they're sure. becoming very tired, yeah, sure. and they don't have the depth, right? So uh, an NFL team has eighty some odd players, and the people who allow them to come in when they're resting are great. An NBA team has has, has benches that are terrific, and, and you don't see that in it. Well, an interesting strategy that that I I've seen talked about, I've seen executed some. I think it's going to become a bigger deal, and I think it's related to the style of football that's played these days. Some in a, some NCAA coaches are not starting a drive, a defensive drive. They're not starting with their starters. Mm-hmm. They're starting with the second-tier guys, and once the teams move 20 or 30 yards down the field, they bring in the starters who are then better rested for the more important side of the field. This is the strategy. Okay, unfortunately, now, 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 but, now, what's now, my retort? But, but Adi, <laughs> that's not true because it is more difficult to make progress ah, right, on, on the other end of the right, field right. because the, thing, the space is more compressed. And so the expected points, is it's, it's linear through most of the field, but it's not linear all the way. Yeah. 
I'd like to model that and see what, yeah, the, what it, the optimal what the optimal strategy really is. But but it, but I agree. It's a great question, and I don't know that they're doing it optimally. But it is an interesting example of exactly what Mike's talking yeah. about. They're mm-hmm. saying, look, I think the leverage is different here. If I'm on, if they have their ball on their own twenty versus they have the ball on our thirty, and I want to have our better players rested by the time they get to the thirty, if they get to the thirty. So, uh, fellas, the topic that we haven't talked about today, except with I, I ran across one of my colleagues who knows Jeff, um, and we talked about it a little bit, is the Astros situation and now the Red Sox situation. Mm-hmm. Any, mm-hmm. I know you all have lots of thoughts on this. Adi, Adi, you said you read the entire MLB report. Yeah, I read the entire MLB report because I'm interested to know really what at what level did the highest management have a role in this. And it is actually quite interesting. Um, so Jeff claimed he had no idea. Jeff, Jeff Luno was the general, general, manager, general manager of the Astros. He had essentially no idea this was going on. There do, does seem to be uh, an email or two exchanged between his office that he saw that indicated that they were doing something in the level of sign stealing that he essentially ignored. And the other thing that they had him on, if you will, was that the league was sending out um, information to to be communicated to the players not to do this, and he essentially did not really do anything about that. He didn't sort of proactively tell his team not to do this. Um, So it's kind of lukewarm-ish in what his culpability is, but of course the the league said, you're at the top, you've got to go, because this is ultimately your responsibility. That's super interesting and helpful. I'm glad that you read the report and can report that, because that helps us understand exactly what where Luna was and was not involved. What about Hinch? Is it true? I saw some blurb that Hinch actually tried at one point to destroy the screen that they were using in the. So back. that wasn't in the report. So I didn't that that story didn't come up in the report. I mean, and Hinch was more involved. But I want to make it clear to everyone: there two. There's really three levels here. First of all, sign stealing is legal. You got to get it. It is legal. legal. It is perfectly allowed in baseball, but not electronically. But not, and and that's where it gets fuzzy. And the real time transmission, right? So there's two issues here. So how do you steal signs? Well, first of all, you've got to decode the catcher catcher signals. And that can be done offline. I mean, you can sit there and just watch the broadcast up in the booth and, and try to figure out which, which of, the, of the many times he signals is the real one. The problem is you've got to communicate that down to the, the to the players on the field. And what the, the first level of, of, of treachery, if you will, was the Astros were using you know, Apple Watches to communicate from. So someone in the booth would say, ah, oh, it's the third time he puts down his fingers. That's the real one. And they'd communicate that using, the, using some low-level technology. And then they would communicate that to the player when they're on second base. So that's in this sort of fuzzy gray area because you're not really using anything complicated. You're not using your own technology. You're just taking what's available. And that may be what Luno has heard about. Um, And that's kind of of gray because you're allowed to steal signs. You're allowed to watch the broadcast, you know. And so the question is to get it to the player on second base who would then communicate it to the batter. Because there's watching replays as well. I think that's come up in the Red Sox part of the investigation. That's that's kind of okay. Where the, the Astros went to the next level was they got a live feed. So here's you have to understand, when you're watching the baseball game, there's a 10-second delay or 15, some delay. They got an actual live feed of their own center field camera that they had set up under the rules that permit this. They set that up in the the dugout. But it was set up for a different purpose. It was set up for a different purpose, but they set up a a monitor right by the, the clubhouse. People would watch it. They would decode the sign, and then they would bang on the trash can to indicate what the pitch was coming. So they circumvented all these complications which are necessary and make it difficult to steal signs and then they used it. The last piece of course is did that really help? Um, anyone who understands baseball would would argue of course it does but apparently the players were the ones who said 
they were the ones who who kind of curtailed it because they found it too confusing and they didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's an interesting take that the whole thing died not because of a, a high level management saying don't do this, mm-hmm. but the players said it's annoying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, Shane and I off the air were having a discussion about this, and I was asking the question, you know, does this put an asterisk on anything? And I like the way you framed it, which is let's assume that people have been breaking the rules in baseball for a long time. Like people were taking amphetamines back in the fifties. You know, uh, you know, I always remember, although obviously I'm a Yankee fan, Derek Jeter, you know, didn't get hit by the pitch, pretended like he was hurt. He goes to first base in a critical situation. Reggie Jackson sticking out. The guys have been breaking rules in baseball for a long time. What did Reggie do? This was in the Yankees-Dodger World Series. Reggie Jackson stuck his leg out, which is illegal. You can't intentionally get hit by the baseball. Mm. Mm. Guys break rules. Now the question becomes, (laughs) it gets back to what Adi said. Let's imagine sign stealing has a massive effect size let's it let's say it did then you could say okay everything at this effect size or greater yeah. we're going to do something about like is this an effect size of peds is this on the effect size of other things you know using uh, vaseline on your cap when you're a pitcher so to me i'm not saying we can do this but if we could measure the effect size of this and the effect size of the other transgressions then at least we could get a sense from an analytical point of view how serious was this and i'm hoping at some point like for example i assume they couldn't do this away because they they didn't have the feed away they no. couldn't transmit it the same way when they were away so i don't know if people yet have looked at there, astros there some home look, away look at this. We, we did it on the show when this yeah. thing first broke we did it on the show real time and we found that some we tried to go to a fundamental batting statistic and it was better on the road than yeah it was the problem was i looked at this as the problem was in the astros everything that happened uh, um at the plate at, at home in that first season, 2007, was just really low. I mean, this was okay. like almost a horrifying park effect that season. So huh. if you adjust for that, then you, that actually didn't go away. Both the away team and the home team were just sort of bad uh, um, offensively at, at Minute Maid Park. So that's hard, very hard to adjust. Now, one of the things huh. just to throw in with this is that teams can defend against time to, uh, sign stealing by coding up their... And they do. And they do. Yeah. So it's just it's just the fact that you're doing this. It's very hard. And I think the players were... were it was just all murky and, and confusing. And, yeah, but they, I mean, but, I... And, but I, just, just to make sure that we're not misunderstood, I think, because I, I appreciate everything everybody's saying, kind of the intellectual argument here, but it, it, it still feels different, right? And I think one distinction might be the examples of cheating that you, Shane, and, and Eric were coming up with, those are individual. That's gamesmanship right, that happens in every sport yeah. all the time. That's different than this organized, organizationally Correct. endorsed at some level cheating. Very different. It just feels no, quite and, 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 and I mean, I, you know, I, I, it's good to you know, state my own opinion so I'm not misunderstood. I mean, I personally believe that this kind of, maybe not at this level, but cheating like sign seal and all this type of stuff exists in baseball and is done you know teams are always trying to get an edge you get caught at it though you get punished i mean you that 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 is how it works right so i mean i, I is, don't think the punishment that, is particularly no but, but let's get you know I, i'm much but, more interested in the, the point you're making i think kate is that this is sort of organizational correct, level cheating very different. Yeah. and as they're setting this up and they're banging on the trash cans and all the players and many of the coaches knew about this the yeah. manager knew it's like it really is like we signed a contract saying we don't do this and we're all doing it and it's not a little bit it's not a player this is a this is a really bad thing and of course the punishments were fairly bad but i think the question for us is at at, at the highest level i mean what do you do i mean luna was caught in this 
not because he knew about it. They don't really have evidence that he did. or that, It's just that the culture that was created mm-hmm. of the Astros yeah. was permissive of this. Yeah. Or yeah. at least it allowed it to allowed people to sort of use their own judgment. There wasn't anything coming down from the top. But on mm-hmm. the other hand, think about all these other situations. How many businesses are, are have this constant method message to their community all the time. All the time. that they need to all be the- ethical? No, the, well, the, often oh. the message is the opposite. It's the opposite. Yeah. That's the so, point. But and this is what's kind of heartbreaking for us, especially because it's Luno. He's a Penn alum. We've had him on the show multiple times. He's been this kind of star for our community. He's McKinsey. Here's another McKinsey guy. I mean, that story isn't out there yet. That should be part of the story. It's like that's. It's just heartbreaking. And now, I one of my main takeaways is, my God, I really do need to double down on the ethics part of my courses yeah. because it's. I mean, I don't know how much we can convey you know that what? in the classroom, but it, well, let me, it, it it hurts us again and again. Let, it hurts organizations. The Astros, after decades of suffering, after do, decades of being nothing finally did this thing. They did this phenomenal thing for Houston. They did this phenomenal thing for how to build an organization. And now it's tar- now it's tarred forever yeah. because of how- because of this one little thing that probably didn't make any difference, but it was so wrong, it's still going to tar. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to comment two things. One is, um, that was my question. We don't know if it made a difference. My guess is it didn't, but we don't know that. Yeah. And that will always lead to fair. the uncertainty. That's fair. Um, I'll just do a little promotion. Um, we have the head of ethics at Google coming uh, a week from Friday. Her name is, uh, her, she is Dr. Timnit Gabru. Uh, her, she does work, she's a head of a division called Ethical AI and Analytics, and she's speaking here a week from Friday. So I'm just, like Google, just as an example, <laughs> interesting I know, has an entire division that, and the title of her talk is Ethical AI and Its Use. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. I'm fully with you that mm-hmm. it's a topic that has to be discussed. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's turn our eyes and attention back to more entertaining bits. All right, we're down to three games left. We've just checked college football off, and we've only got two weekends left for the NFL. Of course, we have a bye between the two, so we've got kind of three weekends, but two games of two weekends of football. Conference championships. This weekend, Eric Bradley, you want to walk us through? I do, but I wanted to ask you a question before that. It relates to this. Both games are at a seven and a half point spread, so I'm already giving you that so you know how to mm-hmm. pick. But the over-unders are very different in the game. So I just wanted to ask you your perspective on one game is thought to be much lower scoring than the other. Does that have any impact on how you might pick? Like it's like let's say I told you the over-under was six. Well, I'll take plus seven and a half if the over-under is six. So is the seven and a half point spread in the 49er game with an over-under of 45 different than the seven and a half point spread in the Chief game with well, an over-under of 52 and a half? Sp- their variance of the sum is the same as the variance of the difference. So, no. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a classic mistake. I don't think so. I think the seven and a half is the same in both games. I think if you talk to a sharp that they would yeah. tell you it does. That, 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 I agree. I think just because, you know, a, a big pick, you know, those big, when, when you kind of go above the spread, you're basically trying to predict, like, is this game going to, game situation going to turn into something that lends itself more to a blowout? Correct. And I think, you know, the Chiefs-Titans thing, basically, I think does lend itself to more of a blowout, in my opinion, because, you know, the the... The Titans have to kind of stick with the Chiefs somehow offensively, and if they aren't able to do that, if the Titans go go down early, 
then I don't think they have the ability to come back because it's again a very much a running based offense. And so that says to me that 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 game is more likely to be a blowout in favor of this. Yeah, I was just thinking of Audi in a very simplistic way. Yeah. And at some point in the future, we can talk about it more. If I write out every score pattern that leads to over under 45 and 52 and a half. Some of them, I mean, I guess it's a lot less of them, will lead to a seven and a half point difference than the 52 and a half. Depending on what distribution you want to put on those, that's just the way I was thinking about it. But with that said... You know, it's worth investigating. Yeah, it's I have worth that investigating. data, we can do some work. It's worth investigating. But Adi, um, let's start, we'll start with the AFC Ooh. game. Is this, you know, do the Titans actually do the clean sweep of the one, two, and three seeds in the AFC and win the game. Because just to be clear, they beat the Ravens, who are the one seed. They beat the Patriots, who are the three seed. Do they now go and beat the Chiefs on the road as the two, okay. who are the two seed? Can I translate this into, into this is a, a momentum question. So by the data, you'd have to go with the, the Chiefs and then, what's it, 60, seven 40, and seven and a half. Um, but I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with momentum. I'm gonna argue that we don't know um, we've un- misunderstood the Titans and that they are they are by taking down. I mean, five thirty eight's Elo. They value their defeats that they're of these top teams get to getting to where they are very highly, and they move them up rapidly. That's the way Elo works. You beat a top team, you get a lot of credit, and I want to give them some credit for that. So I'm taking the Titans. All right. Shane? No, no, I'm taking the Chiefs. The Chiefs are going to... Well, I'm getting I, seven and a half, by the way. Yes, oh, yes no. of course. We know that. Yeah, yeah, seven and a half. Yeah, with All the right. spread. All so right. you're taking the... T- I'm, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the Chiefs, even with the, with the seven and a half spread. I think okay. uh, they are a better team. I'm, I'm, I'm that with much you. better our, team. Our, our lines, Massive People, our lines are right on top of the market this week, but I like the favorites in both of them. I'll, on KC, I'll, I'll be in the minority and kind of a Ravens homer and say, I, I don't think Tennessee... I think Tennessee had a lot of things break their way just by chance last week. I'm less impressed with that victory than a lot of people were. I think KC smokes them. Yeah, I think KC wins the game by more than 7.5, but I think it's a close game for a long time, and I think KC pulls out at the end. All right, I'm the but only we'll one see. who took the other You're side You're the only of one it. who took the other wow, side. Now, that's now fun. We'll start, Shane, we'll start with you just quickly for in one minute. Packers at 49ers. I'm taking uh, the uh, San Francisco again, even with the spread, because I think their defense is incredible, and I think uh, Green Bay... Does well when their defense, when their offense is not particularly challenged, but does not do well at all when their offense is is challenged. And I think just to uh, remind everybody, the previous yeah. score in the game I think was thirty nine to eight when they played. Yeah. Yeah. San Francisco won yeah. thirty nine to week eight. Was that? I think it was a long time ago. It was middle of middle season. season. Middle of the yeah. season. Cade. So uh, we're, we're again right on top of the spread, but it kind of redeems. We've been short Green Bay. We, we have them kind of in the middle of the pack for the entire NFL. And every time I watch them, I'm like, really, CP buddy, really? Because they look pretty good. Well, the market came in right with us this time. I'm with the Niners on this. I, I like the fact that they've got both a stout defense and one of the most innovative offensives out there. I love Aaron Rodgers, but I'm gonna, I see the Niners here. And Adi, I agree with Cade. Nothing else to say. And I'm just going to say um, Green Bay barely got past Seattle, and I thought Seattle was not particularly good against the Eagles, so I'm taking San Francisco as well. Okay, so fellas, three of us took both San Francisco and Kansas City. What if you had to choose right. both of them or or not? If, you, if the over or under, do you want both of them? Would you bet on both of them winning, or would you or would you take the other side that one of them loses? I'll take both. Wow. I might take the other side, just you know, just because that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I think, uh, though I did say that they would both cover their spreads, I think both games will be competitive. So Adi's I think I'll take the other side. Adi's running both. the numbers. Adi's running the numbers I, for what I the probability is. No, at that are. spread, they're both over point seven, so or at least point seven. So it's, no, it's, no, 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 no. Currently, 7.5 is not point seven. Not even close to what that. Do, what do you think it is? 
I would say it's more like 62%, 63%. Oh, well, then you... I think, I think you may be working with college football variants and not 12 NFL variants. 12 and a half variants. is NFL variants. 12 and a half. So you think it's below below 0.7, well below Well, at one, one standard deviation, 12 and a half is, is uh, 16%. Okay, so Shane's intuition carries the day. Worked last year. Hobby, right. So you, want, you, don't want the, you don't want the joint. You'll, you'll, take yeah. the, you'll take the one of them's going to lose. All right, fellas, that has been another Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here from the whole crew. Many thanks. Many thanks to Matty Datsun, Dion Simpkins, Zach Trapkin. Appreciate all the help from the team. We'll be back next week. Come back and join us between now and then. Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.